Hello to everyone and welcome to yet another expert conversation run by the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our podcast series focusing on a post-COVID reset, meaning a reset along a more equitable and smart path. As always, this podcast will revolve around two main issues. One, concrete policy measures that are seen by our invited experts as being conducive to such an inclusive recovery. And two, the data and the knowledge we hold that could and should inform such policy shifts. Our expert today is Saraf Davala. He is the chair of the Basic Income Earth Network and co-founder of India Network for Basic Income. He also served as the research director for the Madhya Pradesh Basic Income Pilot in India. These roles and the knowledge coming from them are absolutely critical to our conversation today. Saraf, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lulia. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I am Yulia Shevchuk, UNESCO's lead for inclusive policies and data-driven policy change, and I'll be your host today. So this episode discusses basic income pilots in India and, importantly, what these pilots tell us about the potential of such schemes in the country and perhaps around other countries in the global south. We'll debate everything and probe everything from different angles, making sure that you, the listeners, get an all-round understanding and discussion of the issues. The first part of this podcast will focus on more granular level on the pilots themselves. So, Sarav, could you please tell us briefly about the basic income trials run so far in India? And feel free to choose a couple of trials you think are the most solid elaborating a bit on the key design features, meaning the number of people covered, the selection criteria, the process, the evaluations, the limitations, and so on. So uh, let me define that basic income has five important features. I think those things are really essential before we take up this conversation. It is individual as opposed to usually given to the households. It is cash as opposed to coupons or any other means of Uh, vouchers or whatever. It is uh, universal, which means in a given territory, it is given to everyone, irrespective of work status or their ethnicity or whatever. It is, uh, uh, it's it's periodic or it's monthly as opposed to one-time grant. It is regular. Uh, I mean, usually we think of monthly because usually in urban areas, we think of a monthly salary. That's how it functions. So everything is kind of configured around the monthly. So it's monthly. And the most important and the real cutting edge is that it's unconditional. There are no conditions attached whatsoever to become eligible for for the basic income. And later, to conditions in terms of producing certain outcomes or uh, compliances, whatever. So I think this is the ground level definition that we will kind of discuss all along. There was a pilot, in fact, I think Seva did two pilots. One pilot was in Delhi, in the urban area, but that was a replacement pilot in the sense that the the, the food um, subsidy cards were replaced with cash, equivalent amount of cash in a one slum. And they tried to see the difference between those who replaced uh, with the cash and those who did not. The MP was a much more classical basic income pilot, also different from several other pilots because it followed all the five rules or the five pillars of the definition of basic income. It was universal, which means that in the village, we did it in nine villages, in the village, every single individual got it. Rich or poor, upper caste or low caste, whatever uh, background, 
working or not working, disabled, able, blah, blah, blah. Everybody got it. They were actually two pilots uh, in the sense that uh, Madhya Pradesh has about 23 to 25% of the tribal population, which is the indigenous uh, people. Now, when we started this pilot, when we were discussing with the government, government said that, you know, uh, you must also do a tribal village because tribal behavior could be different. So we had one tribal village and eight caste villages where usually the caste system exists. So just for the variation. And uh, so here, uh, altogether in the Madhya Pradesh pilot, we covered about 6,000 individuals. As I said, we gave it to everybody. And the criteria for choosing, uh, because it was a kind of a modified random control trial, we had equal number of control villages and the so-called treatment villages or transfer villages. And uh, we also made another distinction as Seva villages versus non-Seva villages, because Seva is a trade union, women's trade union, they were organizing them. So if they are present in a village where basic income is being given, what difference would it make? Would it enhance the effects or uh, what, what else would be? So we also took villages where Seva was not present, so that for the sake of comparison. Now, um, where the amount of money we gave, actually, if you look back like 10 years now from now, it was a small amount of money. But our calculation was we wanted to stretch this entire study into the current debate of poverty in India. So we took the poverty line and we did not replace with any other uh, existing government programs. This was just a top up. So we gave something like a, I won't go into the details of this calculation, but we gave something like a 20% top up uh, based on the poverty line. So that was to the individuals. So when you look at individuals, X amount of money will, will may look small. We gave about 300 rupees, 250 rupees, and to a child we gave half of that. But if you take a family of six, family of seven, I think the amount suddenly becomes much bigger. And most families in a context like that would pool the money and use it for their whatever economic activities and then uh, everyday consumption. I think those were the design features, Lulia. Can you yeah. tell us how the evaluations were taken care of? Uh, was it external uh, or internally evaluated exercise? In the case of uh, Madhya Pradesh pilot, uh, it was funded by UNICEF, whereas Delhi was funded by UNDP. And uh, in the case of Madhya Pradesh pilot, uh, research um, committee was constituted by SEVA, of which Guy Standing was the lead. I was the second. And um, there's another statistician called Soumya and Renan Jabwala also. So uh, four of us were con constituted into a research uh, team and we evaluated independently uh, of SEVA's, any, no, no SEVA's involvement. Speaking of evaluation, what were the key assessed outcomes of, of your pilot? And if you wish to talk about New Delhi and other pilots, obviously you, you can uh, uh, do that. Um, uh, one would imagine that uh, you looked into economic uh, activity, into labor market participation, to health, school attendance, gender, which is important. Um, so could you elaborate uh, on key outcomes against uh, the main parameters? Yeah, uh, I think uh, we had about a dozen parameters on which we uh, try to evaluate. 
and uh, most of them essentially coincide with the all the development domains that we usually talk about in the development sector. Um, I think, uh, I mean, the data and the findings are all in the public domain and have been discussed quite widely all over the world. Um, I will go into very briefly into each one of them. Uh, because if I go into one into depth, in depth, I think it will take all the time. Now, broadly speaking, in a rural milieu we were deal, dealing with, I think what was in a in a larger sense this kind of an injection of cash into households had done was it gave liquidity to people. Uh, you know, in this, um, I think all of us know that in such rural areas, the the cost of money, particularly when you want to borrow is very, very high. So moneylenders lend you at uh, 5% per month, 6% uh, per month, depending on the emergency, depending on how desperately you need. So given that kind of a situation, and given the fact that most people live from one debt to another debt, how heavily debt-ridden in the rural areas, small farmers, laborers are, given that situation, and also where we did this work, there was also bonded labor. Given all that, I think that liquidity did, it was electric. The effect of liquidity in the hands of people, having cash in the hands of people. So that's why I think what we learned from that experience was that the emancipatory value of money in, in this case, the model in which we gave was so much more than the actual material value of that. We were surprised at the effects of that. Okay, if you look at it in a economic economic effects, I think you can look at them in terms of at the village level, at the local economy level, what it has done, at the household level, what it has done, at the individual level, what it has done. Okay, I'll quickly run through this. At the village level, what it has done is that um, it stimulated the local economy, certainly, definitely. Because when you have cash in your hand, uh, people started buying assets. And in a village which has uh, green grasslands or a forest around, people immediately run and buy goats and cows. Because you can graze them for free and then you can earn money, income through selling milk or the goat itself. The second thing, I think people also have started doing fisheries and uh, and. Uh, a lot of small farmers had patches of land, but they could not cultivate that land because the capital was very expensive. Now here comes this, uh, the families pool together, and then I think you add up all this for three months, and then you have that chunk of money to buy your seeds or your, to buy your fertilizers. And you don't have to go to the money lender who is also the big farmer in the neighboring village and who is also puts a buyback clause after the harvest comes. So given all that, I think people started cultivating more. So that actually stimulated uh, the economy. I think the livestock have gone up like crazy in the village. Suddenly you saw them doubled up. So that kind of stimulation to the local economy was a real, real big effect it had. And we are all the time talking about stimulating local economies and small economies and the village rural economies. Um, but we always look at the industry coming and doing it rather than 
and making people choose how they want to enhance their economic uh, activities. So that is what giving people choice actually does the magic. Similarly, I think at the household level and at the individual level, uh, at individual level, which translates itself into household level, is uh, at a psychological level, imagine in our colleges and universities when we didn't have a fellowship and then suddenly we got a scholarship. It completely changes your perspective. What we call, uh, I think uh, in, in economics, they say that the time horizon changes. So instead of thinking only about tomorrow, if you have income security, psychologically, you start thinking about the day after. Now that time horizon shifting enables its uh, household or an individual to begin to plan, to begin to save, to begin to borrow intelligently, blah, blah, blah. You name it, all those things happen. So I think those were uh, very, very visible, important effects in the villages that we saw. And if we had continued, I don't know where the the, 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 show, the, the effect would have kind of um, ceased to continue, but it was a huge uh, jump in the initial 17 months that we saw. And you said, talked about the labor market participation. Now, labor market participation, you know, if somebody wants to, uh, one of the effects was that, uh, what is your primary occupation? Are you a cultivator or are you a wage laborer? Okay. Uh, initially, we got a certain response where they were spending 60% of their time or maybe 70% of their time as wage laborers and 30% they tried to do it. Some people, not at all. But on an average, when we saw people shifted part of their time and effort and work into doing their own thing. Either they were grazing and when women withdrew from the labor market, which was um, what they preferred, some of them, they, they became entrepreneurs. They, they, they bought two cows, or they borrowed some money, they saved some money, blah, blah, blah. And because the entire village had, had liquidity, I think the, what you call, credit worthiness of individual households also goes up. I said that, okay, Lulia, give me 100 euros and uh, I will give you next month when I get my basic income. It is a believable proposition, you know. So uh, the credit worthiness goes. So to that extent, I think your dependence on this high cost money lender slowly comes down and you go and buy your goods, four goods, and then they multiply very fast. So I think we saw, um, I don't want to go into health and school and gender specific, I think um, in several ways, this kind of a bullying, bully of what you call, it was a positive run of several economic indicators. So you raised some uh, very interesting points that we had podcasts before on different pilots and with uh, experts coming from different uh, angles uh, uh, on those pilots. But you're the first one to uh, mention indebtedness and the role of cash and liquidity. Um, it hasn't been uh, mentioned uh, uh, in the context of pilots run in advanced economies in developed countries. So that's very interesting. Second thing you mentioned is uh, diversification of livelihoods, that you don't do what is low risk and what you have been doing for your entire life, but you dare to diversify and to try other things. And then third, and that's something I, I really uh, would like you to elaborate on, 
um, you said that some women decided to withdraw from the labor market, yet they tried to do something else. It's not like they gave up on work. It's something uh, um, it, it gave them the needed boost to go into more entrepreneurial activity and path. So that speaks um, in a way to this worry many critics uh, uh, think about when discussing basic income, disincentive to work. You give people cash, they give up on work. Is this what you saw or not? You saw people maybe giving up on work, but doing something else instead of full-time employment. Well, uh, on the question of disincentives to work, I think uh, we have a huge body of evidence now to show what actually happens. We realize that it is nothing but a prejudice. In the, uh, in fact, I think uh, till a certain point of time from poverty, when you get cash, I think there is going to be you work much more, uh, much more, and later on probably it may stabilize as your income security or whatever uh, stabilizes, but I think people actually started working more. That is one. The second thing is that people uh, people make shifts and small choices they make once they are relatively secure. From a more exploitative employer or oppressive employer, you try to shift to a slightly better one. I mean, the, the money we give, uh, the money given in several other projects that I see, actually it's not much. I think uh, it's not really much. What we gave was not really much. But the beauty of that is that they strategically they add up and to bring out a bigger outcome. So uh, somebody who is on the verge of leaving a particular job, but not able to at that point of time, not able to say no, actually gets a boost from this sense of security and makes the choice. In fact, we have seen this when parents wanted to um, immediately when they shifted their children to a school which they thought was a better school, they said that how how could you plan like this? I mean, you you don't even have enough. Said no no no. I've been wanting to do this for the last two years, but I think now I know next 12 months I can really afford it. So they quickly shift. So they're waiting for the last push, and this liquidity comes and gives that last push and the confidence it gives that okay I'll manage. Okay. Now, I think it's it's it, unless we prepare them for the withdrawal, I think it's uh, it's going to affect them. But I think that's another story altogether. Thank you very much. Uh, we could discuss it probably for another hour or so. <laughs> uh, but we uh, have to move to other really important uh, issues. And you already touched upon it. You already talked about the interaction of basic income pilots with the existing social protection systems and safety nets. And this is something that uh, many experts worry about or flag that as an issue that has to be figured out. Um, if the basic income uh, schemes are designed to come on top of existing entitlements, that's one story. Now, it's a whole different conversation when the basic income scheme comes to replace current entitlements. Um, what is your take? Having seen both cases in India, what is your take? How do you think this should happen? I would like to take a satellite view of our situation. We need to interrogate our entire system now, the way we are doing things in the name of social protection. We need to put each and every scheme under stress test of 
what is it delivering? Does it deliver? What kind of problems is it answering? What kind of questions is it answering? Is it really an answer or we just continue because it was, it, we, are, we have to continue. We just got used to it. We have a machinery to, to deliver it. So I think all these questions are necessary because we have no right to waste our resources. We have very limited resources. Countries like low-income, middle-income countries, we are, our resources are limited. So we can't, if you see, if you look at the PDS system, I think there is evidence, there are, there are writings, uh, the existing, in fact, in, in India, the biggest programs where the money goes in the name of social protection is Employment Guarantee Scheme and Food Security Program, which spends about 35 billion or 40 billion dollars every uh, year. Now, it is accepted that uh, average, I mean, the, the leakages of the uh, tr what we call transmission losses are to the tune of 30 to 40 percent. What are we doing? Why should we not question that? It's a very important thing we should question. Is it solving the problem? Is it really giving rice to people? Is that really improving their nutrition? I mean, what I mean, we have to put it to we have to put to uh, that stress test of what is that we are doing? Is there a better way of spending this money? Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, I hear you saying that basic income is not patchwork. We shouldn't be seeing that as a way of fixing some small cracks in the current system. We should put everything on the table, scrutinize absolute everything against the parameters and the impacts we want to achieve, and then decide what is the system we design from scratch. Not fixing necessarily what is there, but redesigning. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I do not look at basic income as a tablet that is a new one more drug we try. No, it's not that. I think we are reaching a kind of a big human crisis, societal crisis and economic crisis very, very soon. I think it's time that we open up everything and put everything on the table and think of how are we going to care for these populations? of this podcast and in this part we are going to talk about uh, bigger pictures uh, moving from individual pilots and the discussion on um, individual basic income schemes towards uh, more profound questions and uh, Saraf you already touched uh, upon those you mentioned the crisis you mentioned the need to reimagine our future um, our economies our societies and how resilient those are to this and future um, emergencies to come. Um, so let's talk about scale up fast. Much of what we know, including in India um, and in the rest of the world, comes from uh, um, very small uh, contained uh, basic income schemes. How do you see the scale up happening in India? The scale up question is, um, I think uh, the changes will come incrementally. I think the political consensus uh, will not emerge one fine morning. Uh, I think it will happen slowly. Now, 
and I believe that uh, at the end of the day, we have to have universal basic income now. But then looks like this will not come from the federal governments. I think these initiatives will come from the uh, provincial and the local governments, be they, they may be cities or they may be provinces or they may be states. Uh, in the case of India, we say state. But if you look at uh, the, the global picture, like if you take South Korea, it's the it's the Songnam city which initiated something like uh, a basic income. And it's the Gyeonggi province which is making major strides and then in, innovating uh, their own system. Uh, I think now he's going to be a candidate, a democratic candidate for the presidency also, the governor who introduced. In India, uh, we had a very interesting scheme that was announced by the Telangana government here in South uh, called a basic in kind of they didn't call it a basic income they called it a investment incentive scheme but this goes to the one subset of population which is really about six million farmers every farmer who owns a piece of land patch of land will get a certain amount unconditionally he doesn't even have to cultivate he gets it unconditionally so that was implemented in 2018 and it turned out to be such a big electoral success to that particular party that even it started shaking the federal government and the party in power in the federal government immediately came into like you call it what do you call it like panic investment <laughs> like panic selling or buy they, they immediately they announced another program which was not universal which is with conditional which was like you know blah 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 but they they thought that this is really something big so i think that is still continues and it's very popular in many five other states also started implementing it with some uh, corrections um, and then now there's a huge last elections we had there was a huge discussion about uh, giving it to the housewives in West Bengal, one of the states, they implemented that every woman between the age 18 and 65 will get a certain amount of money, cash, every month unconditionally. Now, the way I'm looking at it is that somehow the most important element of the basic income system, which is unconditionality, is gaining traction, in particularly in the local governments and local uh, and also it's also seemed to be giving electoral dividends which is a big attraction to politicians and policy makers so uh, though unconditionality is very counterintuitive as i was describing in the beginning now but i think if political parties start taking them up which in which in the case of india at least two major political parties one big national party and a small state party uh, have actually taken it on board. So incrementally, I think we will move towards that. This not because um, there is an immediate and a short term buy in of political parties, but it was in view of the, the future requirements of our economy and society. So I'm, I'm seeing that is how it's going to scale up. Indeed, you mentioned uh, examples in India, Korea. Uh, we had experts uh, on this podcast series from the US where it started uh, in yeah. one and now being scaled up uh, in about 14, as far as I recall, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, municipalities. So yes, it comes from grassroots, not in terms of yeah. population, but in terms of sub-national levels to see how it performs. 
what is the support, what is the financing, um, also fixing some of the issues and questions, finding answers and then scaling up and bringing it to um, to another yeah. level. Now let's talk about, we talked about different contexts, advanced economies, low, middle income, um, and let's focus more on this particular question of uh, UBI in developing countries, in low and middle income countries. Uh, what do you think India and the pilots uh, coming uh, uh, from India can um, uh, teach the rest of the countries in terms of lessons learned from these schemes? Yeah, I mean, let's uh, make a few statements about North and South. But I think uh, what the crisis I'm talking about, the employment crisis, uh, I think you see any of the reports uh, from, starting from McKinsey report, ILO report, um, or the World Economic Forum reports, all the reports that World Bank reports, all the reports that are talking about the jobs, about the future employment, they are pointing to a big crisis. There's going to be a major shift of jobs. So, which means that uh, it, the employment crisis is going to translate into a welfare crisis. And then we have to start working on all of them put together. And all this is technology driven, which means that the current welfare systems we have, which are based on the beverageian model of the post-war situation. I think the problems it was the model, the problems it was solving at that time, we don't have those problems now. That doesn't mean we don't have problems. We have newer problems and more serious problems, which means I think that model was giving protection to the exceptions. But today in India, particularly the permanent good, permanent employment, a person having permanent employment is an endangered species. <laughs> we don't, we will not find them anymore. It's a very small percentage. You will be shocked at that percentage. It's about 6% of the entire working population. And out of that, two thirds of that 6% is the government employment, which is all progressively eroding. So if we, if we look at the good jobs versus bad jobs ratio, I think Globally, we are moving towards bad jobs. By bad jobs, I mean, I'm just putting it in a very simple way. Bad jobs, I mean that most of these bad jobs, all of the bad jobs are precarious. Today you have it, tomorrow you don't have it. You can be thrown anytime. Short-term contracts and all that whole uh, setup. So the, the, the growth of the precariat is a certainty. Now, given that it's, it's a crisis in every country, but the contexts are definitely different. The seriousness is relatively different. In the sense, uh, in the global north, I think there is a reasonable, reasonable, and uh, to for individuals to maintain their dignity, the basic dignity, there is a reasonable kind of social protection system that looks after your housing, food, and blah, 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 blah. Whereas in a country like India, we are talking about 93, 90, 90, percent people who are in have I addressed your question you have you have by saying that uh, we shouldn't be talking correct me if I'm wrong but the conclusion I draw from what you said is we shouldn't be talking about that many differences in context between advanced economies and other countries because 
the crisis that is looming will regretfully equalize us all, yeah. uh, rendering the old uh, welfare state uh, models obsolete and pushing everyone to rethink. Yeah. And basic income is one way of rethinking that. However, you also say, and uh, I do agree with you, that when we talk about precariousness and poverty and dignity, there is a big difference between what is subsistence level uh, in uh, in a province in India and what it is in Sweden or any yeah. other well-off country. Um, but speaking of the crisis, uh, and uh, that's one, one thing we discussed with uh, certain experts, and I would love to, to hear what you say. So COVID came with a surge of interest in basic income before it was discussed uh, more as a standing policy tool, as a longer term scheme. Uh, but COVID came with uh, quick deployment in, as an emergency response. And now the discussion is spinning uh, a bit in the direction that, oh, maybe it is a policy tool that can, could be deployed in crisis uh, settings, in emergency, in humanitarian, in international development, um, as a tool that has been tested and has to be um, uh, scaled up uh, uh, in the future. What do you think? Do you think it has potential in specific? Because many say, uh, look, uh, quick deployment of basic income is important. Uh, circumvention of bureaucratic uh, loopholes and uh, and uh, overly uh, heavy systems is a plus of basic income. So why don't we think about it in international development or in humanitarian? What do you think? I do believe that uh, in the case of now, for example, I think World Bank is going to start a very big uh, basic income project in a, in a in a one of these northern African uh, countries. And also, I think in the case of uh, Afghanistan, we are also seriously thinking if this should be the pathway we should be. We're also discussing as BN, we are discussing with UNDP if this is the way forward. Or in other crises like in northern Iraq or uh, other crisis spots, hotspots in the world, if this should be the way forward, I think many, many serious considerations are taking place because it's like I said in the in the case of India also, administratively it's the easiest thing to do in the current technological uh, situation that you can just send money to people's mobile phones. Uh, apart from that, I think at the end of the day, what we see when you have cash in your pocket, people have exercised their freedoms and their choice. They will do what is dignified for them rather than standing like a supplicant in front of the donor, in front of the government, in front of the bureaucracy. Uh, I think it's a question of dignity. I would put it that way. At the same time, as I said, I think I spoke so much about the liquidity part. I think it uh, it makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. part of this podcast. Um, as you know, our key concern here at the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab is connecting knowledge and data to policy and concrete action on the ground. So let's touch upon uh, this in, in, in the last leg of the podcast. Uh, first, addressing knowledge communities. 
What, in your opinion, are the areas the researchers need to dig deeper into? As in, what are the knowledge gaps you think they need to be addressing when it comes to basic income in general and to the um, context uh, of the Global South in particular? As I said, basic income is one pathway to a solution or a set of solutions. But uh, we, should, uh, we should know what is the problem it is solving. What are the problems it is addressing? I think we have to focus on the problems rather than focus on solutions. Uh, which are, uh, what are the problems we are, we are facing? What are the issues we are facing? I think the, the issues globally are issues about delivery. Are we doing it right? What are the right ways of delivery? And how with this huge push of technology, we can improve delivery to the last mile. I think reaching the last mile is a very big priority be it cash or be it any other uh, ways of uh, the development parameters. And um, also, how do, you, how do you ensure that the ecological and the welfare, all these things are simultaneously addressed rather than in silos? It's not that as a, as a social scientist, I'm a social scientist myself, I, but I, unless I look into the ecological aspect and how it's affecting the entire population, I just cannot get the big picture. So I, I'm strong advocate of taking the big picture and what are the implications society has as ethical questions that we have today. And so um, in that sense, I think um, there's, a, there's, there's a whole question of the commons. Uh, how do we understand commons? Do we really take cognizance of the commons which belong to the global community, which belong to a national community, which belong to a local community. And I think, can we can we foreground the, those commons and say that these commons are meant for the mankind? So by 2050, I think we are going to live in a very different, by then we are, all of us will be old and gone. But I think we are going to live in a very different society. <laughs> Saraf is laughing because I pointed at myself saying that I don't uh, plan to be gone by that point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So what so I, I think... hear you saying is that uh, problem definition is where we should start. Basic yeah. income is a tool that yeah. needs to be understood in the broader context of the problem. Yeah. And then to see how uh, a parallel uh, crisis could be possibly solved with um, one tool, hitting two birds of one stone. Or, um, for example, uh, someone uh, we had previously uh, on this series was talking about uh, environmental crisis and carbon taxation and the use of that, um, redistributing through through basic income and dividends, uh, meaning that this could be a tool to two different issues, environmental and social. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we should innovate. We should innovate and come up with new uh, definitions of problems and then new solutions. Mm. So um, last question in uh, uh, this podcast is always uh, uh, to the policymakers. Now, if uh, you address them, uh, uh, what data and findings you think they should be particularly um, attentive to at this point in their policy debate on basic income? What would you like to draw to their attention? The most important concern uh, is the 
the most important question that policymakers are going to ask, if not today, tomorrow, they will be forced to ask is that, how do we care for populations in the rapidly developing situation of a very different kind of a texture of employment, different kinds of livelihood systems, and what is going to happen to the rural versus even today India is 60%, uh, 65% rural and uh, urban is. Now in a situation like that, I think the most important question is about how do we care for populations? Now, what kind of systems we are going to put in place? I think that that is extremely uh, most important question that they should ask. So this is what I would tell the policymakers, you know, that they need to accept that there is a crisis. They can't go on thinking positively. They have to accept there is something wrong, but they have to have a vision for the future that how are we going to deal with people's livelihoods and their basic security in the next 20, 30 years? Unless we do that, this is not a luxury to imagine the future, but it is a necessity today. I think today things have changed, already changed. I think we are still not. It's like Rome did not fall in one single day. It fell piece by piece. So pieces are already falling. You might think that I'm really <laughs> talking all the time about a crisis, but this that is because the more I see the situation, the more I'm convinced that unless we take this whole issue into our attention and bring it to the table, I think uh, we will give small patchy solutions and we'll start looking into small little departments and then it's an economic solution, this is a moral solution, this is an ecological thing. I think that kind of, we should take big picture. Satellite view of Satellite view of Well, Sarah, thank you very much. It was such an interesting conversation. Thank you for coming uh, on this uh, podcast. It was a great, great pleasure. Uh, to the rest, uh, thank you very much for following. Uh, for more, please uh, check out uh, the UNESCO Policy Lab and our PolicyNet channel, where you find experts such as Saraf and other thinkers. Uh, uh, talking deep data and discussing concrete policy solutions we need in this recovery. Thank you very much. Thank Bye. you. Thank you, Lulia. Thank you, yeah, thank the you. rest of the team here. It was a pleasure talking to you.